Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 287, recorded February 9th, 2011. Bitcoin Cryptocurrency. This episode of Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial plus two free months with purchase, go to Carbonite.com. Offer code SECURITYNOW. And by MailRoute.info. MailRoute is a secure hosted service that provides enterprise-grade virus and spam filtering to companies of any size. Try it right now, absolutely free, at MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show you need to listen to if you want to be safe on the Internet. And joining us to help us figure out all of the confusing things that can happen to you to threaten your security is the man who brought us shields up, spin right, GRC.com, Mr. Steve Gibson. Good to be back with you again this week. Hey, Tom. It's great to be with you for our second out of three weeks while Leo is roaming around the globe somewhere. Is he, is he in Asia? Is that where he is? I believe he uh, is with penguins. He's, oh. he's on his way to Antarctica. <laughs> on a cruise, right? Yeah, we actually got to use the words out to sea literally. <laughs> we, were, we were talking about uh, whether we could contact Leo. He's actually been uh, very communicative. He did, an, uh, he did a meetup in Argentina uh, when, they, when they stopped in Argentina. And he's, uh, he's been Instagramming and Twittering. So I almost feel like Fan. I'm on the vacation with him except having to work. Fans everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I know. All right, well, we got a really good show today. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about a virtual cryptocurrency. Yeah, um, it's something that a cryptographer, a Japanese cryptographer, uh, created about two years ago called Bitcoin. And I learned about it. I think someone sent me a tweet about it saying, hey, Steve, check this out when you get a chance. And so I, you know, dutifully noted it, jotted it down and had a chance over the last week to dig into it more deeply. And I'm really impressed by what they've done and by the fact that this thing really looks like it has, it's the first solution to the concept of a, of a, of a distributed non-central server, no central clearinghouse. I mean, it's like it's currents, it's internet currency, which can work and is working um, and there's just lots to talk about, lots of cool technology in there, which of course is is our angle the, from the crypto side. So we're going to talk about that this week. You know, I, I've always been fascinated with the idea of online currencies, uh, even before flus came along and sort of turned it into a joke uh, back in the dot com days. That is like the worst example. I think that did more to set back online currency than anything else that's ever happened. So I'm glad to see that a serious effort. Uh, is underway, and I can't wait to to learn more about it. We also uh, got some security news about throttling and do not track, uh, and some good stuff like that coming up in our updates as well. Yep. 
Well, let's uh, thank our first sponsor for Security Now, MailRoute.info. Uh, they get rid of spam, but they also get rid of viruses uh, because a lot of spam is just viruses or phishing attempts. Uh, you can keep all of that stuff far away from your inbox with MailRoute. Tom Johnson does a fantastic job over there. Uh, you edit your MX record for your website uh, and tell it to send whatever mail you want over to the MailRoute servers. And then MailRoute has an algorithm that cleans out all the spam, leaves all the good stuff. I haven't had a false positive yet. I've been using it since last summer. Uh, I, and he says we don't have false positives. So you you, you can go in and, and double check him on that. He has a vault that you can look at just to be sure. Uh, but it's it's a really good service. It really does work. Uh, and you can try it out for free since you're a Security Now listener. So go go check it out at mailroute.info. Give it a free trial. Uh, see what you think of it. If you want to keep it, there's a discount 10% off the lifetime of your account. You can hit it for $30 per year if you're a single user. Or if you're running a small business, actually, if you're running a big business, uh, they they say one to 50,000 people, uh, $2 per user per year to set it up on your entire domain. So check it out at mailroute.info. There is mailroute.com, but if you want to be one of the the uh, Twit users to get the discount, you got to go to mailroute.info. We thank them for their support. Let's get up into the uh, security updates. we got a busy Patch Tuesday today. <laughs> yeah, well. well um, this week. Exactly, this week. Um, of course, last Tuesday was February 1st. Um, so... So Patch Tuesday was the earliest it is able to occur in a month, that being February 8th. And both Microsoft and Adobe uh, showed up. Microsoft had a large update. They fixed 22 different flaws, five of which were rated critical, um, sort of across the board in their operating systems and IE and, and server platforms. Seven had been publicly reported and 15 were privately reported. Um, and the good news is the, the nasty one that we have been talking about the last couple of weeks, that MHTML flaw. Oh, the, the one, MIME one, the one that we were talking, we were explaining last week. Yeah, exactly. The MIME HTML, where if you were to archive a web page, which was malicious and and then view it, it could get you. But there was also a way that a website could supply an MHT format page. There was a bug in the way this MHTML was parsed. So that, and I'm really pleased that was fixed. Now, we weren't we sure it was going to be fixed, were we? It, no, because it was so, it was, I mean, it was a short period of time just before this Patch Tuesday. So, you know, it's interesting because sometimes Microsoft really seems to, like be asleep with a switch and sometimes they they just jump on it. So I think they probably really wanted to avoid an out of an out of cycle patch. This thing was being exploited in the wild. It was a zero day exploit that was first discovered when it was being used to attack people. So um you know they had that little quick fix which we talked about last week and with the effect of applying that um our listeners may remember is only to disable the scripting in MHT archives, which I would argue you could very well just leave off. I was going to say, is that is that a good idea to have on anyway? Exactly. It's like many things which default on and which if we knew better, we would just always have them off. And if, of course, if people had them, they would have never been uh, potentially vulnerable to this problem. So, I would be inclined just to leave it the way it is if you did disable it. In any event, um, you'll have to do a reboot because this thing is actually part of Windows proper more than 
IE, although IE was the vector for exploitation. So um, that that got fixed. Also, there was a long-standing and kind of well-known flaw in in Microsoft's internet uh, server IIS uh, that is for the FTP service. There was a way that. A, a malicious F, a maliciously formed a deliberately malformed FTP command could gain bad guys access. Microsoft's defense was, oh well, FTP service is not installed by default. But you know, it's like okay, fine for Vista and Windows Seven users. If you had IIS uh, loaded and were using an FTP server, as you know, people who have some some reason to do so would, there was a vulnerability there that they fixed. Now. The big news, though, is Microsoft did something that they almost never do. There was a non-security behavior change that they also released this, this last Tuesday. Two years ago, we talked about, it was almost exactly two years ago, it's February 24th of 2009. On this podcast, we talked about their bug fix for the broken disabling of auto run that is it's very well known that all kinds of of worms i mean conficker for example is famous for this um will jump onto for example usb thumb drives and use the fact that when you stick it into a computer it looks for auto run.inf and then runs in order to in order to spread so it used to be that you could and and very smart people would disable that when when they were setting up Windows the first time, because it was it was actually one of the first web articles I ever edited for the screensavers in 1999 was Kate Batello telling uh, folks how to disable auto run in Windows 98. Uh, right, and it's been a long-standing problem. Now, what's really funny, well, not funny in a strange way, uh, ironic, I guess, is that just this recent uh, ShmooCon uh, 2011. Uh, John uh, Larimer from IBM's X4 security division gave a presentation. It was a very early presentation in the morning. He thanked people for getting up so early on how, unfortunately, Linux's desktops have been evolving to be easier to use and becoming more like Windows. And that as a consequence, Ubuntu is now exploitable due to its support for auto run which has just recently been added to the linux desktop whereas microsoft has been burned by it so much they're they're you know moving away from it so um now uh, that, that that is an oddity it, i mean it, it is the, the classic tension between ease of use and security though right yep. there playing out in, in real life well, and that's why Microsoft so infrequently takes away anything that they have have, have previously had. They they're so re- reticent to remove functionality. But you know, this auto run problem with USB is just a is a persistent problem. So what happened was in in February two years ago, they fixed the bug where it wasn't actually disabled the way we thought it was. And then they came back in August, uh, August 25th of 09, and they, for the first time, they created an optional um, security update that would, that would, for people who wanted to run it manually, would essentially do this for them. It would stop autoplay 
functionality on USB, on external hard drives, and on network shares, all of which were being exploited for various purposes. The big news for this Tuesday is that they rolled it out formally as part of their normal Windows update process. Basically, it's installed non-optionally, and it turns off autoplay for USB devices. So that's that's huge. What, what that'll mean is, you know, I mean, the downside is people who have been dependent on that will find that something that they're used to no longer works. They'll have to manually run, you know, set up or install or to auto run INF, whatever it is, you know, however they normally would be starting something that on a on a removable device that, that, that they plug in, as opposed to it happening automatically. Now, there are many USB devices which emulate a CD, and those will continue functioning. So oh, Okay, so this is not turning off all auto run which is what i've seen a lot of people interpreting this as it's turning off auto run for certain configurations if you will precisely cds and dvds will still auto play as they did before but usb sticks unless they emulate a cd in which case windows thinks it's a cd and will auto auto play it unless it emulates a cd then windows is just from this point on saying nope we just can't take the risk Users are going to have to, you know, run this stuff manually because... So there's no just, way to turn it back on. It's just it's just disabled. Uh, you know, I didn't pursue that. I'm sure you can. I'll bet you could go back into the registry and manually re-enable yeah, okay. re autoplay. I'm sure you could turn it back on. But, there, but, but my, so what my, Microsoft is saying is if you haven't manually disabled it yet will disable it for you if you can if you want to come back later and turn it on fine you know then we're assuming you know what you're doing and and you're gonna um you know ask for the behavior that, that you get dr bomb in the chat room has a good point does that mean something like u3 still auto runs precisely yeah. u3 was what i was thinking of when i talked about a device which does emulate a cd because it it shows you a cd and it it looks like that to the OS. So 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 something like U3, you don't lose the functionality there, which how is sort of a nice compromise. I guess it is. But how secure does this make us if somebody can just create their malware to emulate a CD? Correct. I mean, that, you're right. That'll be the next thing is yeah. that it will, will now will, will now move there. Um, uh, anyone who's running Linux who's concerned about what IBM's X-Force guy showed at um, ShmooCon, if you just Google uh, S-H-M-O-O-C-O-N 2011 and then an auto-run attacks against Linux, probably you could just do auto-run attacks against Linux, but that will that'll bring up, that's the title of this a 51-minute YouTube presentation of this guy's talk. And the point he's made is that in Linux, as in other operating systems, but specifically targeting Linux uh, for his presentation, when you when you stick a USB device into a contemporary Linux desktop, all kinds of different levels of driver are engaged in order to in order to connect with and and recognize and mount the drive into the file system. And many of those devices he contends, have not nearly been um, examined for exploitability as much as we would like. And he demonstrates 
taking over a Linux desktop that is, you know, normal default configured just by sticking in a maliciously formatted USB device. So again, Linux desktop users uh, may want to take may want to check out that presentation. It was it was a good one. We also got a, a big thick stack of uh, security vulnerability fixes for Adobe Reader and Acrobat. Yep, they're catching up with. Uh, they had twenty nine. Hey, they beat Microsoft. <laughs> they did twenty nine critical security vulnerabilities, um, which they addressed in the in the release version of Reader ten. Uh, which, you know, they, they use an X for that. So Reader X, re, re, Reader 10.0. Um, and also uh, the, uh, many of the same things were in, in Reader 9.4.1. So they're encouraging everyone to update to the latest version 10 of Reader and Acrobat. And that's 10.0.1. Uh, and then in their in their release notes, they note that it also includes updates to Flash Player, uh, keeping it current. And just, I needed to mention this because I guess there must be some people somewhere who are still using real, real player. Um, of course, I, you know, we could probably count them on one hand. <laughs> and that's the good news. Um, you know, real, as, as, as we've talked about in the past, uh, just was a horrendous security and sort of over-marketing exploitation approach to media players back in the beginning, really before Microsoft got into the media player business and sort of pushed them aside. There are still, I think, mostly within corporate America or, or in general, corporate earth, uh, uh, companies that are standardized on real player. If you're using the .rm, you know, .rm, .rmi, the standard real media formats in this case you're okay because this is specifically an avi vulnerability um quoting from from one of the sites that was tracking this they said a buffer is allocated according to a user supplied length value user supplied data is then copied into the allocated buffer without verifying its length allowing the data to be written past the bounds of the previously allocated buffer. I mean, this is classic buffer mm-hmm. overflow attack. You know, you, you ask the media, oh, how large is the data you're going to give me? And the media says, ah, let's call it 200 bytes. And then it says, okay, fine, let me have it. And of course, the media loads 5K and blows the buffer of 200 bytes that was allocated and then, you know, stomps over the stack and and is you know has just loaded executable code which the system then runs when it tries to come back from the subroutine that was loading this so anyway this is a classic buffer overrun exploit it's in the current release of of real player only affecting avi files so if you are a real player user you probably know it uh go over to real and bring yourself up to date because this could this uh, the way the way this would be exploited would be just going to a web page that happened to invoke uh, an AVI file in real player under the hope that you might have it installed. If you did, you could get taken over. So you don't want that to happen. I, I might also add, if you're a real uh, user, go to videoland.org/vlc. <laughs> <laughs> and stop being a real a real player exactly. user. Yes, very good idea. <laughs> All right, let's get into some security news. Firefox yesterday uh, added something to its latest beta of version 4, uh, the do not track option we were talking about last week. Yep, 
We talked about their intention to do so. I just wanted to let people know that it had appeared in the UI of Beta 11. It is not enabled by default at this point. Of course, it's not supported by default <laughs> by any advertisers that we know of in the world. But it's one of those chicken and egg things. Right. The advertisers won't support it until the browsers ask for it. So I'm glad to say that Firefox 4 is asking for it. And I know that as soon as I start using 4, I'll, I'll go there to the advanced tab and, and say, yes, turn on, do not track, and begin to get some experience with how that works. I, I like uh, that the, uh, the option says, tell sites I do not wish to be tracked. But it, it doesn't promise they won't, it just, because that's accurate to what it's doing. It's putting yeah. up a flag, but sites don't necessarily have to honor that flag. Yeah, and I mean, I can vouch for the the pervasiveness of Firefox use. Uh, I mean, I know that GRC is a is going to tend to have a savvier user base come by, but by far the bulk of visitors at GRC are using Firefox over IE, which of course is in in, in our case is in the number two position. But so that says that it's it's not as if we all have to sit around now waiting for Microsoft to do something before anyone's going to take this seriously. You know, I, I just hear people more and more talking about, you know, that they're using Firefox. And of course, Chrome is coming on very strong too. Google, as as we also discussed last week, has made um some um some motion in this direction, this whole you know, do not track deal. So, you know, the good news is this has been a problem for years and we're beginning to see some um, some solutions. Offered. Hopefully we'll get to a standard. It's, it's good that the different browsers are trying different things, but we can see what works, what catches on. What I always hate is there's a point where you, you could agree that, okay, that's the thing that works best. Let's all standardize on that. Rarely that does that happen. Usually yeah. we go through a long march of everybody sticking to whatever it was they started with. So, Well, which we already have, for example, with no script that has its own format of do not track different from what the mozilla folks adopted unfortunately right, exactly within you the know, same browser even within the same browser so yeah. so like giorgio when, when when mozilla announced this giorgio the author of no scripts was you know he posted immediately said uh you know i already put this in here happy to have you guys use the same header but why not use the same header yeah. instead of use a different header so now you know the query that it has of the, the a query from firefox of version 4 beta 11 that has the, the mozilla do not track turned on and is using no script with with giorgio's options turned on will have multiple headers say, saying the same thing in different ways and nobody so, listening Exactly. Nobody listening at this point. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, Verizon is coming out with their own version of the iPhone this week, and uh, they have very quietly announced some new policies regarding throttling the top 5% of data users, as well as some what they're calling content optimization. Yeah, which I thought I, I wanted to mention this just because I thought it was the the details of content optimization i thought was really interesting they said on 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 a pdf that they made available on their site quoting first this issue of of bandwidth throttling just i wanted to bring it to our users our, to our listeners attention for any of those who would be affected they said verizon wireless strives to provide customers the best experience when using our network a shared resource among tens of millions of customers to help achieve this if you use an extraordinarily, an extraordinary amount of data, 
and thus fall within the top 5% of Verizon wireless data users, we may reduce your data throughput speeds periodically for the remainder of your then current and immediately following billing cycle to ensure high quality network performance for other users at locations and times of peak demand. Our proactive management of the Verizon wireless network is designed to ensure that the remaining 95% of data customers aren't negatively affected by the inordinate data consumption of just a few users. I so, think, you know, this this is a replacement for keep maintaining your network at proper capacity. They're worried that they're going to get some bad press if their network gets clogged. And so what's an easy way to do it? Throttle down some people. But if you want to do that, you got to put a policy in place that explains who you're going to throttle down. So this doesn't, a lot of people are saying, oh, if you're in the top 5%, you'll be throttled for two months. That's not exactly what they're saying here. They're saying we reserve the right to periodically throttle you basically when we need to. Right. I I, I agree. I think that they're, that exactly as you said, they want to be preemptive. They want to say, look, um, just to let you know, you know, if you are, you know, I mean, you know, really hogging bandwidth because, you know, I got my Verizon iPhone yesterday um, and I've got, you know, unlimited bandwidth use on it. That was the the plan I chose. I'm, I know I'm, I have a Blackberry. I've got the, 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 now I have the, the iPhone four um, and I'm never going to be a heavy user, but I know that there are people who, I mean, you know, they're sitting there watching all of their video uh, consumption through all of the various online services now and over time using a huge amount of bandwidth. So Verizon is saying, look, you know, for for people who are really at the top tier, as, as you said, we may need to throttle you. Now, what's also interesting is from, from a technology standpoint, I, I got a kick out of what they've, they've acknowledged they're doing. And anyone who's interested in the details, I'm going to run, run, run through them, but you can see the whole document at verizonwireless.com slash VZW optimization. So verizonwireless.com VZW optimization. They said, we are implementing optimization and transcoding techniques in our network to transmit data files in a more efficient manner to allow available network capacity to benefit the greatest number of users. These techniques include caching less data, using less capacity, and sizing the video more appropriately for the device. The optimization process is agnostic to the content itself and to the website that provides it. So they're, you know, they're, they're making clear they're not wanting to go uh, you know, upset all the net neutrality people. They say, while we invest much effort to avoid changing text, image, and video files in the compression process, and while any change to the file is likely to be indiscernible, the optimization process may minimally impact the appearance of the file as displayed on your device. For further and more detailed explanation of these techniques, please visit it's www.verizonwireless.com slash VZW optimization. Now, I did go there and looked, and I saw a couple things that I wanted to bring to our, to our listeners' attention. First of all, this only applies over port 80, ah. which is to say HTTP. Mm-hmm. They have, and, and as we know, they have no visibility 
into HTTPS, into SSL connections. Well, that's a nice little workaround. So it had exactly if you're, if you're with a website that that honors HTTPS, of course. But right, um, and the reason this is interesting is that they really are. So so what they're trying to do is they're trying to conserve the air bandwidth that is bandwidth in the air. So if you were to go to a website, for example, that had a a really large low compression JPEG. Um, anyone who's ever actually made a JPEG probably knows that the compression that you set on a JPEG is variable. You can choose lower compression, higher quality, where the image stays like ultra crisp sharp, or you can make the a JPEG image, the file physically much smaller at the cost of some fuzziness. Basically, it's in terms of in terms of the type of compression JPEG use, something called discrete cosine compression D, uh, uh, DCT. It's it's expensive to 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 transmit the data of a sharp edge. It's much less expensive to transmit the data of a gradual change. The way this type of compression works. So if you back off from requiring your images to have sharp edges, then you can you can get a much greater level of compression. So what Verizon is doing is they're literally parsing the stream, looking at the objects which are being downloaded from web servers and 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 here they're saying they're reserving the option to change the data. They will take a low compression JPEG and and recompress it to a higher level in order to minimize its size. They will even transcode video on the fly across formats. They'll go from, for example, they might take an AVI that's low compression or a real media or something. If they know what, what your device is capable of, they will transcode it, and this document talks about this, to H.264, which, as we know, is, is a much higher quality um, compression for bit rate. And so what they're saying is, you know, they're, at, at their discretion, they're going to preserve the bandwidth of their over-the-air service and compress things. Now, what's really amazing is that they're not doing it based on URL or even file name. They look at the first 8K, which is typically multiple frames of a video, to determine if they've seen it again. So they're watching the, the, the start of your video and, and, and using that to, to key their own caching technology to see whether they have already seen this video before and compressed it for somebody else. And if so, they switch you to that stream and that's what they send. So, it's, so you're it's, sharing streams. It's aggressive. Yeah. I mean, it, this is aggressive optimization. Um, you know, <laughs> maybe they weren't carrying the iPhone until now because they weren't ready for it. That, I mean, that very well may be true with all of this work. And, and couldn't they have... This is this is a cheap shot, but I'm going to say it anyway. Couldn't they have spent that time and money on capacity? 
<laughs> well, I mean, this is a long-term investment. I salute them for for doing this, and this is some serious technology. I mean, this is this is state-of-the-art caching and you know Wi-Fi bandwidth optimization. I it'll be interesting to see if if users notice any effect. I mean, you could do. You could imagine that, like, if you could have two videos that start the same because they were edited from the same source material, but then are different, and their cache could be fooled by that. I was going to ask about that. Uh, now, I wonder, yeah. wonder when we get the first uh, people uh, on purpose spoofing videos yeah. that are popular to deliver yeah. some, uh, maybe, you know, images that people weren't expecting. Yeah. Um, the other thing that they're doing in along the same lines is that they're they're deliberately sending only enough video ahead to keep your player running. That yeah, is, I was thinking this would be a the nifty way to take advantage of their transcoding if you wanted to change videos to H two six four, but you you don't actually get the whole file. Yeah, they're they're and see and and again they're being smart about this. They're recognizing that many people don't watch the whole video that they download yet they download it all. So Verizon is saying we're going to be we're we're going to be buffering in your player, but we're only going to stay enough ahead that if you stop watching something after a few minutes of a of a fifty one minute presentation. Um, for example, that YouTube I just talked about, then we won't have wasted our 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 on air our over air bandwidth delivering video that was never seen. So, you know, potentially this is all good as long as it doesn't cause problems. It's it's I would say it's tricky technology. I salute them for being this aggressive. I hope it doesn't you know have any downside. Yeah. I imagine there'll there'll be people who'll be playing with it. I'm, I know I'm not, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, the other thing I've been seeing in the news lately are a lot of reports about how mobile is now the new battlefield uh, for malware uh, because we just had a report yesterday saying that smartphones outsold PCs in the last quarter of 2010. Uh, so yep. there's some news from McAfee about this. Yeah, Symantec had issued a report. Um, we're beginning to see reports from the major security guys and McAfee just, I think it was yesterday, uh, issued their report where, um, and, and, and paraphrasing them, they, they didn't use the, the phrase new low-hanging fruit, but that's how I would describe it. What's happening is that, you know, PC technology and Windows specifically, because it's been such a target for attack. I mean, what? This podcast is in its sixth year. You know, Leo and I have been talking about Windows security, Internet security, 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 you know, every single week for six years. Meanwhile, smartphones come along and are being adopted, as, as you just said, at a fantastic rate and often, frankly, being used by people who are who are even less tech savvy than 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 Windows users who have figured out what it is they have to do in order to be safe. Less you know, of a barrier we, to entry, so to speak. Yes. And and maybe there's even more temptation. Um, you know, maybe it's just that people aren't yet as afraid as they need to be about phones, but Arguably, a smartphone, I mean, we know that it's running a full operating system now, given, you know, all that they're able to do. But the, the, the thing that a 
that malware wants more than anything else is connectivity. And, and while it's true that PCs are connected, I would argue smartphones are even more connected. I mean, there's more channels. You've got text. You've got all the social networking things. You've got email. You've got web browsing. And, and you've got applications, which, I mean, and this is, of course, a problem and, and a concern over the, on the Android platform, where people you don't necessarily know real well have created these things that look like, oh, wow, I really need that. And bang, now it's loaded in my smartphone. Well, what is it doing? You know, it has all access to potentially this massive communication resource on the little computer that you're holding in your hand. So I just wanted to say once again that um, we are seeing uh, sort of the, the people who are watching security trends, they're saying that, you know, malware exploits are trending you know, rapidly in the direction of smartphones. So for our listeners, just, you know, stay on your toes. All right. We're going to get into our uh, main topic, Bitcoin, a digital currency. Uh, but I know you have a, a testimonial for SpinRite to read first. Just a, yeah, nice letter. That, uh, is someone, a, a listener of ours named Mark Folkart sent uh, with, with the subject, yet another SpinRite story. He said, Steve, been listening to your podcasts and following you for a while. I wanted to say thank you and relay yet another success story of Spinrite. I've been a computer consultant for over 10 years and had a client come to me. Uh, he says, parens, CIO slash director of IS for a medium-sized foundation with her husband's dead laptop. Her husband is not a client, but you know how that goes. He works for a large brokerage company, I won't name, and had all his client-slash-contact information on the laptop with no backup. He had gone to his IT department, and they were unable to assist him. At our urging, they unencrypted the drive and returned it to him, still broken, and his sales database was still inaccessible and trapped locally. Couldn't even slave the drive. I used a copy, and he says, parens, they had purchased a licensed copy, of Spinrite and went to work. Less than two hours later, we were back in business. He had his contacts back and a working machine. Although I received no direct compensation, it certainly increased my credibility to a good customer. And how do you put a price on that? I will continue to use and recommend your product and just wanted to say thanks. Sincerely, Mark Folkart. So Mark, it's thank a, you for the great note. It's amazing to me that an IT department <laughs> wouldn't and i've had i've had it happen I won't, I, I won't name the workplace but i have been i have been at a place where my drive crashed and i was like hey can you you know recover the data off this nah can't be done is what i was told i was like well no it it can yeah <laughs> there, there are ways uh but it's a good point about why you should back up uh you know spin right what, what a coincidence spin right is an excellent tool but you don't want to have to use it. You, you want to have your data safe. Uh, so, so you should have SpinRite available, but you should also use a backup solution. I, I like to have a backup locally and a backup in the cloud. And for, for the cloud, I use Carbonite. Uh, and they're happy to help sponsor security now. Carbonite keeps you away from unexpected computer disasters that happen all the time. It helps protect the valuable files on your computer, your PC, your Mac, your Linux computer, uh, even can be backed up by Carbonite. Uh, they have clients for PC and Mac, though. 
you should know it's safe. Your files are encrypted end to end. Before they leave your computer, you have maximum security. So nobody out there can can get into them except you. Uh, it's easy to use whether you're a computer novice or a full-fledged techie. You, you download the software, you install it, and you let it go in the background. You're using a PC or Mac. It's just doing its thing. You can even tell it. There's a setting that says, hey, if I'm busy, I'm using a lot of bandwidth. Don't back up right then. Wait until a, a little bit of a downtime so it actually doesn't get in the way of your bandwidth use. Uh, and it's like I said, it's automatic. It just goes on in the background. Plus, you get your files back with just a few clicks. And a side benefit of that, because they're backed up in the cloud, if you're away from your computer, you can log into your Carbonite account and pull a file down that has been backed up. You can, in fact, you can do it on your BlackBerry. You can do it on your iPhone. They have free apps for that if you're a Carbonite subscriber. Unlimited backup for your PC or Mac is only $55 a year. I like that when they, when they break it down, it makes it, you know, $55 sounds cheap. 15 cents a day is what it would cost you. That's, that's cheaper than having a hole in your pocket and just having change fall out. And you get the peace of mind of your of your data being backed up. Mine's backed up right now. I can look and say, hey, I'm, all, I'm secure. All the things that I need backed up are backed up. So try it for free. You don't even have to pay the $55 yet. Go to Carbonite.com, enter the offer code security now. Uh, and if you decide to buy the service after the trial, you'll get two months free with that same offer. Offer code. So you, 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 you can try it out for free, and then if you keep it, you get two months free. Be sure to sign up for the free trial from the home page to get those two months free. You don't need a credit card either to try it out. Just go Carbonite.com, enter that offer code security now, start backing up, and realize how easy it is and how secure you'll feel. So our big topic today is Bitcoin. We call this a cryptocurrency. Can you? Well, can, it's really, really Clever. You know, the reason that I just I sort of fell in love with this <laughs> for the moment is as I plowed in, I, I just got a big kick out of the way that the the many problems associated with a with a sort of a, a floating currency, meaning a currency that doesn't it isn't anchored by any central bank. There's no state sponsorship for it. It's it's I mean, it, and it's a it's a real thing. Anyone who's interested and, and I would encourage our listeners, if if this podcast and what they hear about it makes them curious, go check it out. You just put Bitcoin into Google and you'll start seeing pages of stuff. Um, and uh, about two years ago, um, the project was registered um, a little over two years ago by a Japanese cryptographer Satoshi Nakamoto um, and it's it's an open source project on SourceForge so none of this is you know black art stuff um, the the goal is to really solve I mean to offer it an honest to God you know non hobby level but but industrial strength internet based peer-to-peer currency where real value can be exchanged between two parties without any intermediary being involved. And, and that's one of the trickiest things because you've got all kinds of problems. First of all, um, where does the currency come from? You know, what creates the currency? How much currency is flowing through the system? How do you monitor that and regulate it? How do you prevent it from being inflated? How do you, peep, how do you keep people from fraudulently 
creating currency? How do you keep someone from, if they have some, from reusing the same currency? Um, all of that has been solved with this system um, in in some very clever and and very new ways, which is what which is really what captivated my attention on this. So there wait, was no, wait a minute. So we have currencies. We have euros and yens and dollars. Uh, how can you invent a currency? What makes that work? Well, okay. So think about it. A, a currency is is nothing really but an agreement among the parties that this synthetic thing has value. You know, once upon a time, you know, when we when when the when the dollar was anchored to a gold standard, the idea was that there was gold backing up dollars and 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 so when you had a so-called promissory note, it was a, you know, it was equivalent to X amount of gold. And we were, of course, famously taken off of the gold standard. The problem was we needed more money than we had gold. So we had to disconnect the, in the, in the case of U.S. dollars, we had to disconnect U.S. dollars from gold because we needed to, we literally needed to create more money than then we had gold to back it up. It's, it's kind of an incredible innovation in human society when you think about it, that this works at all. Because <laughs> yeah, and you know, it started out, you were carrying around your chickens because you just wanted to trade what you had of value for you know, what the blacksmith had. That got right. inconvenient. So gold became a good standard because everybody valued gold and everybody had, kind of had the same value of gold. But we've well, gone from that to this sort of agreement that, well, I'm going to I'm going to agree that a dollar's worth of work is worth a dollar's worth of merchandise and and we it doesn't have to be backed by anything. We'll just we'll all agree that that's the way to pay stuff. So I guess that's all they have to do is get enough people to agree that this currency is valuable. Correct. Well, and notice also that we chose gold because it was scarce. We didn't use water, for example. Right. You know, because you just go over to a stream and dip your bucket in, and now, <laughs> and, and the problem is, of course, anybody could go do that. So, so there's a water- famous scene in one of the Douglas Adams novels where they decide leaves will be their currency, <laughs> and it has the same problem. Well, of course, money grows on trees, right? You know, so exactly, yeah. and so, um, so we chose gold because it was scarce. And you know, famously in the in 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 the days of of you know individual gold miners, they'd go out and try to find it because they would basically they were creating more currency to put into the system at a at a controlled rate. And initially, when there was lots of gold around, we were digging it up and 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 turning it into bars and and coins and so forth. And over time, it became increasingly difficult for us to to find more gold. So it it became increasingly scarce, and its its value has increased. So and in, so, in some ways, a a virtual uh, we have a virtual currency with the dollar and the euro and all of these. And in some ways. That that is a little more fair because someone can't just go out and find a bunch of money well, unless they're robbing a bank, I guess. But you know, you can't just go digging in the hills and luck into a bunch of money. It has to be earned in some manner, right? So, what we what has been created with Bitcoin has all of these attributes. There there is this 
concept of a of bitcoins, the currency in in, in in the same way that the abbreviation for U.S. dollars is is USD and euros is EUR. Bitcoin's abbreviation is is um, uh, BC, uh, BTC, Bitcoin, BTC. And this so this network of computers exists now on the Internet peer to peer. You can go to Bitcoin.org and download a program for Windows, Mac, and Linux, which is open source, and install it on your computer and tell it to start generating Bitcoins. That is literally start making money. So, So you are making money out of nothing. Well, just by okay. being a member. Of, I mean, how do, how does this this is, sounds like some sort of uh, bit torrent situation? I, I know, where you, sa- where you, it sounds wacky, but yeah, yeah. So so you are making money. The way you make money is by is by processing transactions within the Bitcoin system. So, and this is this is complicated. But unfortunately, it needs to be complicated in order to be robustly secure, which it really is. There is a in the FAQ at Bitcoin.org or org in the FAQ. There's a link to the original PDF that uh, that Satoshi wrote that describes in greater detail how this works. But the idea is that you want a you want a transaction trail of every single transaction between two parties that has ever occurred and they're occurring all the time now this is not just this currency is virtual but it has been anchored now to real currencies there are there are websites that that will trade real currencies for bitcoins um, they, they, at this point in time, about two years after it was, it was launched, um, the current, the, 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 the current, um, uh, currency trade of us dollars for bitcoins is about one to one. I think it's like 93 cents for a Bitcoin. And there are organizations which accept Bitcoin payments. Uh, the EFF, the electronic frontier foundation, um, uh, accepts donations in Bitcoin currency. There are there are programmers who will work and and accept payment in Bitcoins. There's a there's a I think it's called Trade a Trade Link at Bitcoin.org that is shows a page of lists of of all the of the currency exchanges that exist now and then a, and a growing number of organizations and and companies that will that will accept bitcoin currency as real so i know i this still That's, sounds that, all that that okay let's back up a little bit here <laughs> uh, if i can just create by running the program money aren't we running into the leaves and water problem where we just get runaway inflation and the currency okay. is valueless so yes except that it's all controlled it is the the way it functions is that New coins, new bitcoins are generated on the network 
when a node, and for example, if you're running the program, you are one node. When, when, when a node finds the solution to a hard problem. Now, it, it, the, the, this is really very clever, the way this works, because it, it prevents people from being able to create currency at will. Um, back in 97, I think it was 1997, um, someone named Adam Back came up with a concept for anti-spam, which he called proof of work. The idea was that spammers function because they're able to just spew out email at virtually zero cost. It doesn't cost them anything to send out email. So as a consequence, we're all being deluged with email, which it's expensive for us to receive, not expensive for them to send. So, so Adam said, what if we come up with a way of making it expensive for someone to send email? And the way we do that is we, we create a computational burden, which we don't have the technology to short circuit, where they have to do a substantial amount of work in order to sort of validate an email. And, and on this show, we've talked about hashing a lot. Hashing, of course, is a, is a, is a valuable technique that takes an arbitrary length input and turns it into, hashes it down into a so-called a, a, a digest of a fixed length. So imagine like take SHA-256, which is the, uh, is the secure hashing algorithm, which produces a 256-bit result. Imagine if in order to qualify for sending email, you have to hash the email header such that some number of the first bits out of the 256 bits are all all zero so if you if you just hash a a an email header at random the most significant bit has a 50% chance of being a one or a zero so so you increment a sort of a fudge factor and then hash it again and until you get that that that, that first bit that's a zero but say that your work so, so say that to qualify the the header has to have a hash where the first 20 bits for example are all zero well it's going to take two to the 20 operations to guarantee that so an average um, half that number of of hashes have to be tried. So the idea is this forces someone to do a huge amount of work trying to uh, fudging the header in order to get all like the first x number of bits of the hash to be zero. So in practice you could set the difficulty so that it might take somebody two seconds to do the work on a one gigahertz PC. But that would mean that it takes a spammer two seconds per email, which is vastly more computation time than it takes them now.
And so, so this was, on an individual basis, you don't notice that that much. Exactly. But, but if you are trying to send, you know, vast amounts of email, which I guess could negatively impact legitimate bulk email like newsletters and things like that, too. And actually, that's exactly why the idea did not take off was that it was still, while yes, it would be burdensome for spammers, it, exactly as you said, there are legitimate mass mailers. And if we, if we, you know, if we did anything to allow them through, then the spammers would come through too. So it had to be all or nothing. And it was too much work for, for legitimate mass mailers. But it was a, a really interesting concept. And and Satoshi borrowed that concept from um, from um, that Adam Back proposed back in '97 for this. So here's the way it works: the the system is uh, so. Imagine that there are among all these peers, there are people exchanging value. They're exchanging bitcoins. Um, a Bitcoin exchange is somebody wants to send somebody else some bitcoinage so they have a the, the whole system works with, with a um, asymmetric key system a public key system where where they have both a public key and a private key they take some amount of bitcoinage and and put their public key and sort of associate their um, or, or in, in include their public key in the transaction. Also, the public key of the person it is it is being sent to, and then they sign it with their private key. So, so what that creates is that creates a transaction that only they could have originated because they're the only ones who have their private key which they keep secret. That transaction is broadcast into this peer-to-peer -peer network to all the nodes in the network. And everyone's transactions are broadcast. Now, it's easy for anyone to verify that transaction because they know the public key of the signer and that allows them to verify the signature. They can't sign it themselves, but they can verify the signature. So, so that allows them to verify the transaction. Now what we have to, to do is we need to prevent that the, the person who's just depleted their Bitcoinage by giving some away from giving the same Bitcoins away again. So, the, and that, so that's a, clearly one of the hard things to solve about this so the the way we do this is over every so often all of the all of the transactions which have occurred since the okay uh, there's sort of a problem of chicken and egg here because i have to explain multiple things at once for this thing to hang together there is there's this notion of blocks a block is a collection of transactions which have been which have been sort of adopted by the network um, the and the block which is this collection of transactions is the thing which work is done to create in the same way that I was talking about work being done to 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 create this special hash for email headers 
a the the work being done to create this block is what all the nodes on the network are busy doing. So all the nodes receive transactions and the the a, a block is chained to all the previous blocks by taking the the hash of the previous block as as part of the next block which means that essentially you have a a forward moving chain of of blocks which are which are linked by the by the by, by the hash of the previous block there is a genesis what's called the genesis block which was created on January 3rd of 2009 so just a little over two years ago, when the system began, there was an anchor block, which is embedded into the um, all of these nodes in in into the code in the nodes. When a when when someone downloads the program and turns it on, they 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 go to an IRC chat room that is the 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 the, the code autonomously goes to an IRC chat room joins the room, and that's how it learns about all the other nodes or many of the other nodes on the network. It, it then interconnects to them and receives the entire history of all previous blocks. That is, this, this, in, this blockchain anchored by the Genesis block all the way to the most recent block that anyone has created. So, and in in, that sounds like it could become computational, computationally extensive over time, though, right? Um, uh, yes, except that there's another clever thing that it turns out there's a way to compress these so that so that once the blocks are old enough and no one cares about the individual transaction details, then you no longer really need to care about them. The idea is you you need the transaction details long enough. To, to make sure that nobody tr- so so that the transaction details are available in the network so that no one is able to reissue the same bitcoins again but but at at, at some point then um, it becomes impossible for them to because it because the blocks become old enough and you do not need to it turns out you're able to compress these blocks um, and make them a lot smaller. So, and I think the growth rate is estimated at something like 4.2 megabytes per year would be the maximum amount of storage that this architecture requires. So it, it ends up really not being very much over time. So, so what happens is there, there's this, this sort of chain of blocks. Now, all the nodes in the network are competing with each other to create the next block. And it's the node which wins, the node which first does the amount of work required to to essentially create the next block that that earns 50 Bitcoins. And so, and and this all sort of scales in the right way. I'll I'll explain in a second. So, So, all of the nodes are cranking away. They're, they are taking all the transactions which have not yet been 
encased in a block and and they hash all of that along with the hash of the previous block which that that anchors them together and means that you're not able to 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 create a block that isn't linked to the prior one hash it all together and then and then the there's a certain amount of difficulty which is uh, of finding the a, a block that functions by by exactly um, as, as we were talking, having a hash with some number of of zeros from the left end going down, and at the moment, I think that number is twelve at this point in time. You have you, you so so all the nodes are 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 tweaking a little fudge factor in the hash, trying to find trying to build a block which has. 12 zeros um, at, at, at the leading part of, of this 256-bit SHA-256 hash. As soon as a node finds it, it declares success, broadcasts that to the network. Remember that while it's extremely difficult to, to find the, 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 um, the pattern that makes the hash, it's incredibly easy to verify it. You know, verifying the hash just requires, you know, doing the hash of the block and seeing that, oh, look, somebody did create a block that's got all those zeros. And the first transaction in every, in any block is paying yourself 50 bitcoins. But it's only but if you can make that block valid, that then that transaction in the block of paying yourself 50 bitcoins is validated by the network. So, so, so the we've so, actually had two blocks created since we started explaining <laughs> what blocks are. By the way, for a little estimate of how uh, there are people out there using this. Yes, um, in fact, there is a there. There's a site called I think it's Block Track. Block Explorer got, is the one that block, I'm at. That's the and one. that's block where I, I'm keeping track of this. Yep. Block Explorer allows you it, it's a website that is participating in this peer-to-peer network which allows you to go look at the history of all the blocks that have been created so far. Now is this is this a worry that all of your finances are now going to be in public? Can people look at this and figure out how much money you're spending and who you're giving it to? Well, that's one of the other beauties is that the the only thing which is known, this is a completely anonymous currency system. The I mean, like more anonymous than anything else. The only thing that is known is a is is your public key. So when when you when you download this software and fire it up on your machine and start it running, the first thing it does is to create a key pair. And so you will see, for example, if you find the EFF Bitcoin donation, they show their public key, and um, and um, their various other organizations that accept Bitcoin, they show their public key. So so when you look at the at the history of transactions, all you're seeing is this random ASCII gibberish, which is you know the 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 public key converted into ASCII, and and people keep their private key private, but there's no way of knowing who anyone who 
who who is behind any public key and you the 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 bit the bitcoin client will happily produce key pairs till the cows come home you can make more key pairs anytime you want so you're not even there's no not even any way to track somebody by like oh look there's the same guy who did a transaction here he did it here only if you did not create another public key would that be the case but you are free to create new you know essentially the the public key is a represent is a temporary pure binary representation of you which you're free to retire and create a new one anytime you want I, now, I just I just downloaded it and started it it's not creating it says I'm not connected it's not creating anything is that because I'm not in idle time it has to be idle to start generating those coins automatically well yes and okay so Many things have happened in the last two years. First of all, this began to get traction and people began having fun with this. Um, the way the system works is, um, and I need to get this right, is the, the, the coin creation rate is, um, is 300 coins per hour within the entire system and your cpu your cpu speed the, the ratio of your cpu speed over the total cpu speed within the entire bitcoin network determines the probability that you will be able to solve the puzzle of 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 creating one of these blocks so it's estimated, for example, that it that at this point, I think it was December 2010, so about two months ago, there was uh, there were enough nodes actively cranking away that it would take you about a year to generate 50 bitcoins. That is so so you're not going to see it happen quickly. Now, what happened is as these things started getting valuable sort of started becoming worth something where you i mean you can actually trade if if you happen to get lucky and your node solved one of these solved the most recent block that everybody was working on before anybody else you'd get 50 bitcoins today there is a an exchange that will transfer that in u.s dollars for example into your paypal account so you you actually can make money now you can imagine then that people said, wait a minute, uh, this seems like a good idea. Well, there's something that's much more powerful than even multi-core CPUs, and that's GPUs, uh -huh. graphics processing units. Now Google Bit Bitcoin space miner, M-I-N-E-R, as in a gold miner. What's happened is that there are people on the net that have built... Bitcoin creating boxes with as many graphics processing units as they can get with fans cooling them. They're overclocked. They're pouring Freon over them. These things are running 24-7. Like oil derricks. <laughs> so They're drilling so for Bitcoin. They really are. They're, they're, literally, they're literally creating... Bitcoinage. Now, the cool thing is, all of this was anticipated in the original system. 
because the immediate response to the Bitcoin network of the presence of of massive Bitcoin computation power, which essentially allowed the people who had these machines to to be printing money, you know, minting Bitcoins with a much greater probability than, you know, that somebody who just had a, had a CPU running along, the system automatically changes and changed the, 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 the problem difficulty in order to stabilize the rate at which coins are coming into the system. And here's the deal. There will never, ever, ever be more than 21 million Bitcoins created. Um, the way this works is that the difficulty of this problem that is, is being solved, that is this hashing problem where you're trying to find leading zeros in the hash, it's, it's adjusted continuously by the network so that in the first four years of the Bitcoin network, and we're two years in now, in the first four years, um, half of that total number of Bitcoins will be created. That is 10,500,000 Bitcoins will be created in the first four years. In the second four years, half again, that is only 5,250,000 in years four through eight. In years 8 through 12, that is the next four years, again, that amount is halved. And so it, the, the rate of, of coinage creation will be decreasing exponentially, leveling off so that, it, 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 so that in the far future, only 21 million will ever be created. So we have a, we have a, a controlled and known inf rate of inflation within the system it's and it makes sense because initially as the system is coming online as as goods and services are being made available and are trading within the system you want to have more currency being pumped into the network so that you have bitcoins to trade but you don't want it to go forever now the problem would be of course if we absolutely cap the, the total number of coinage at 21 million, then and there there comes you know a a you know much greater demand for this. We we the tendency is to want more. Well, the solution is that you you do you're not forced to trade in integer amounts of bitcoins. That is the the UI right now gives you two decimal um, digits of of coinage, so you're able to create. For example, you 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 could exchange 0.01 of a Bitcoin, and the but the technology supports eight decimal digits. Although right now we're only using two, so so that allows for deflation over time um, because we're we're absolutely capping the the total number of coinage at this 21 million mark. And we know that it's going to be declining over time. And it doesn't matter how much GPU power is put into the system. The system adapts so that the, the problems being solved scale, the difficulty scales up to balance the amount of processing power 
in the entire network. And some people have commented that the, the, the question then becomes, are you spending more money on electricity and cooling for these crazy Bitcoin generating engines than the money you produce? And over time, it looks like that will be the limiting factor. You, you know, it's like, yay, I, I'm, I've, you know, created this insane work machine to create Bitcoins. But, gee, you know, my electric bill went up more than the, the money that I'm making. And PG&E isn't taking Bitcoins yet <laughs> for, exactly. for my rates. So um, th- th- uh, if there's also a cool site uh, that I got a kick out of uh, called the Bitcoin Faucet. The Bitcoin I was faucet. just trying to use that. They uh, the rate limit has been exceeded. I think everybody's going to get there. Uh, um, <laughs> Explain what it is. Um, it is it is just a fun way that somebody can get some free bitcoins. Um, people who have them can donate them to the site, and you know the guy thanks you very much. And as long as he's got enough supply, um, he'll give you some bitcoins. At the moment. Uh, when I looked before the podcast, he, he was giving 0.05 bitcoins per visitor. Um, if he, when his balance of available bitcoins that he's able to distribute for free is high enough, he increases that. But if he falls below a certain mark, he, he decreases it in order to conserve his supply. Um, there is a, there's an online buyer and seller escrow service. Where, so that, that two people are able to agree that they're each happy with the exchange of whatever it is they, they, they exchange, for example, in the real world in order to allow a, a, a Bitcoin transaction to occur. There are a number of, of online um, exchanges you're able to, where you're able to buy and sell Bitcoins. Uh, there's, there's online charts where you can look at, at the, at the, rate at which bitcoins are being bought and sold and their and their relative currencies this is available in a huge number of currencies and a whole bunch of languages and and essentially it is extremely cool crypto which um i mean this has been pounded on and looked at and it looks to me like the guy has has solved the problems and has created a virtual currency that floats all by itself that is completely private that i mean you know obviously you 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 need somebody who's going to agree with you that you want to you know exchange this coinage but this thing exists and it's taking off and i wanted our listeners to know about it oh yeah very cool really fascinating stuff uh I've, i've been playing with it while we've been talking too uh i i have no balance though and i can't the faucet is off Hmm. right now but at least i'm connected finally so I, I oh, hope to, so so it did. You you did find your network. Yeah, I finally found the network. I have no connections yet, though. But, um, it, but one it of is the things connected. they one, one of the things they recommend if our listeners want to play with this um, is you need you you will get much better connectivity if you do port forwarding of port eight three 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 from from through your router, which typically most people have, or your firewall to the application. Ah, um, okay. That way, other nodes. That are that are informed about you are able to make incoming connections to you, and it's not just you making outgoing connections to them, and that'll allow you to participate in in the network. But I'm I, I would encourage our listeners to poke around as you have been, Tom. There are pictures of these people's 
you know, GPU boxes that they've made with, with you know, with all these fans all over them and, and discussions about the giga, let's see, giga hashes per second in the network. Um, I'm trying to think. I made some notes about it somewhere about the oh uh oh the average rate of block creation is, uh oh yeah one one eighty six giga hashes per second is the total network hashing strength that is there are one point one hundred and eighty six billion hash operations being performed within the entire network trying to solve the problem of the next block creation the one who does gets 50 bitcoins oh and that all that that number also decreases over time um so that um it's for the first 210,000 blocks the value is 50 bitcoins per block that if your computer solves the puzzle before somebody else's then for the next 210 blocks that's cut in half to 25 bitcoins then for the next um 210 thousand blocks to 12.5 bitcoins and a six and a quarter bitcoins and so forth on down so this whole system is designed to to scale correctly and basically create i mean create a secure stable currency with with you know real world value which it has now i mean you can sell you can buy and sell bitcoins you know if you were if you wanted to you could take a hundred dollars and go buy some bitcoins and they know their their electronic currency. You could then send those anonymously to someone else, and they could cash them in to their own currency or back into dollars or whatever they wanted. I mean, this exists now, and it looks like it's it's like bulletproof. And the 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 PDF explains the, they've really thought through what bad guys can do. The only the only attack which is known on the system would involve somebody with massive computational power spoofing the chain because mm. this it's this chain of blocks which provides the integrity for the system but the longer the chain gets and the more good nodes there are the more impossible it becomes for anyone to for anyone with massive computational power to spoof the chain. So um, the other thing that has happened is there's this notion of pooling. Individuals have become a little disenchanted with the fact that, you know, they've got their quad core I-7 cranking away 24-7. They haven't made any money yet. They like the idea of printing money. The fact is, over time, this is not going to be feasible. That is, the way to get rich is 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 not, to print money this is it's like gold miners you know like during the gold rush you ran out and you you hope to go strike it rich and and find a vein of gold and and make money over time that just became less and less feasible because the ground had been picked over and there just wasn't gold to be found similarly ultimately this will be you know it's when the 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 coinage enters the currency and begins to flow you know, people will be using it as a store of value. But anyway, what I was saying was that people who have been disenchanted, they're joining pools of users where they'll all be working together on 
um, and, and pooling their CPU resources and then sharing the proceeds appropriately. So you may not get 50 Bitcoins, but you may get two and a half because you are one two and a half out of 50th of the CPU resource in a pool that, that collectively solved a block. So it, it so it's a way for people to you know see some you know have some of the fun of 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 creating coinage out of thin air by by doing the work that makes the whole network go, and uh, anyway it is it is the it is the the work that has to be done the difficulty of doing the work that keeps bad guys from being able to spoof the system because there just there isn't any there isn't any way to shortcut. This hashing of the blocks is just brute force work. And as more as more good, um, like, you know, GPU based systems come online, that hugely raises the bar that bad guys would have to scale in order to in order to, to spoof. Because now, as a consequence of sort of this phenomenon of using GPUs to, to create bitcoins, you know, the, the network is scaled. So the rate of coin creation has has is still tracking exactly what it should, but it, um, but the amount of processing time being required to make that happen has just gone through the roof. There's so, bitcoins in them. There, internet. <laughs> Something. Anyway, just really, really fascinating. And I mean, it works. We have we have a a state free, crypto secure, anonymous, real currency now that that exists check it out at bitcoin.org uh, it's really fun to play around dot org not dot arg uh dot org <laughs> yeah uh, there's no piracy in the bitcoin world thank you steve so much uh, for explaining that that was really fascinating i i can't wait to to poke around with this a little more i think i'm gonna have to do the port forwarding that you were talking about uh to, to get it well no i've got one connection now so I, it, it seems to be slowly i guess that's what i'd say to, to new people if you're looking at this be patient give it some time to connect you might try the port forwarding trick what port was it again uh 8333 8333 all this is documented in the faq at uh bitcoin.org and um the other the other thing that happens is when you connect the first thing that happens is your node needs to download the history of prior blocks so that'll take a while but you'll see progress things and so forth and there is a on on the ui there is an option to say you know start making bitcoins yeah start making money <laughs> all right folks don't forget to uh visit grc.com steve's got some excellent products up there of course we talked about spin right uh i've i've used shields up over and over throughout my uh, years since you created it to, to make sure that there's not any ports open that I don't want open uh, and all that stuff. Also, it makes you feel really good when you are when you are locked down because you, you have this great, I don't remember exactly how you phrase it, but you have this like, that's impressive. I couldn't see a single <laughs> port. So uh, check it out, grc.com. Anything else you want to talk about before we uh, head out of here, Steve? I think we got it covered. We'll do a Q&A next week. So I encourage, as always, our listeners to swing by grc.com slash feedback. And if you got if you play with Bitcoin, you have questions, um, I'd love to hear them and maybe we'll answer them next week. For free. We won't charge any Bitcoins to answer. No charge. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody, for watching. I'll be back one more week next week. Leo will be back in two weeks from his vacation. Thanks for watching Security Now. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Tom.
Security now.